Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode is called And Then Is Not Good. Caroline Green and I get down to the business of talking about plotting. We disagree on the importance of plotting formulas and she gives me some great ideas from the way the creators of South Park work, which is where I got the title for this episode from. You'll see what we mean when we get there. We recorded this conversation in July 2019. Links to the resources we mention are listed in the show notes, so do look them up if you want to find out more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sitting across from me at the dining table this evening is Caroline Green. She's the best-selling author of In a Cottage in a Wood and other psychological thrillers, and various young adult books, including Cracks. And we've known each other for quite a long time now through various writing groups. Caroline, like me, works in schools and she's a great source of inspiration for creative writing ideas for workshops. She teaches the crime writing course at City Uni in London, uh, where she started at the same time as I did. And I was watching a panel she did recently on crime writing where she said she plots different books in different ways. And I thought that would be really interesting to talk about because usually writers say, I plot like this. And I don't think it's always as simple as that, that everybody always does exactly the same thing in the same way. So I'm really glad that she's come to join me this evening. Caroline, welcome. Thank you for having me. And do say a little bit about yourself and how you got into writing and teaching. Okay, so I was originally a journalist. I trained to be a journalist after university. And and that sort of, for quite a long time, it satisfied a writing itch to some extent. But in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to write fiction, I think, ever since I was a child. So I had a go at it and wrote something, got a bit of interest from an agent, really thought everything was going to happen. Anyway, seven years later and three books, (laughs) I finally did get published. Um, And I wrote four books as Caroline for young adults. And then I made a sort of strange sideways move a few years ago now to write crime thrillers for adults as Cass Green. So I do them under a slightly different name, which feels a bit strange still. Um, And over that time, I started to sort of fell into doing bits of teaching, really. It's probably you probably had the same experience as a writer. You sort of end up doing school workshops and then you get asked to do them. And then you think, well, I don't know how to do this. And you develop things and you find you quite enjoy it. Um, And then opportunities come up. And I've started to teach adults more now, which I do really enjoy. And one of the things I love talking about more than anything else is plotting. I'm obsessed with plotting. (laughs) That works well. I still don't know how to do it really, but I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) And um, you teach at other places apart from City Uni, don't you? Yes, I, well, I do tons of school stuff. I'm the writer in residence at East Barnet School in North London, near where I live, which is lovely. Um, And I also teach, I teach writing for children still for the Writers and Artists Yearbook. They do courses um, from Bloomsbury Publishing in their buildings uh, for adults and I teach twice a year for them as well. That was my Bible when I was Yes, same, me too. I still have my 2008 copy Mm. and I would go through it regularly looking at the essays and checking out all the agents and the publishers. Yes, it it really is the Bible for getting published, isn't it? It's so useful. It's very special. (laughs) I don't think they ran courses then. I think I probably leapt on them if they... Uh, same yeah I would have done as well I don't I really don't think they did I think it's been a whole new part of the the um, company that started up in recent times I believe such a clever idea yes it is so plotting the reason I particularly wanted to talk to you about it was because 
you had said that you've plotted different books in different ways. And I thought that was really fascinating because usually when you ask a writer how they plot, they tell you a thing. Mm. I do it like this or I don't do it at all. Um, and actually, I, when I thought about it, I agree with you. I think we all adapt as we go along and some books need to be worked on in some ways and others in different ways. And we're all different from each other. And... I just wanted to explore what the publishing industry says is the right way to do it and why that is at times useful um, and how we all actually don't follow the rules in our own writing practice and do things in different ways. Yes. Um, so could we perhaps just start, if you, if you think back to the most recent book you've done and just talk a little bit about how you plotted that one? So which is the most recent one you've published? Well, the, well, the most, well, the, there's one coming out, the one that's coming out in September. Should yeah. we talk about that one? Um, I do tend to plot things now. I do tend to try and sit down and come up with some kind of structure. I don't always find it easy and I tend to use lots of different tools. One of the things that I've found myself doing, even though, even as I'm saying this, the thought of doing it is horrific, but for some reason I find it helpful, is to try and write a synopsis really early on. Right. Which is awful because we all hate them. Yes, we do. They're the work of the devil. But I find that if I'm forced to sit down and say this happened and what happened next, it forces me to think about where I might be going with the story. So I did do that. Um, The thing I'm working on at the moment is... I'm having to plot it very tightly because it's a bit of a departure. It's a police procedural for the first oh, time. So right. yes. I'm having to do that in a very, very tightly plotted kind of way. So it does tend to change. I do, I do tend to always try and plot in advance, but I don't always have total success in doing so. How does it come to you? Do you get the characters first or a thing that happens and then you have to plot around it? Um, characters, yes. But also I'm a really big fan of what if scenarios that that's okay. the thing that fascinated me when i wrote for young people um for example my book cracks i was literally brushing my teeth looking at my a crack on my bathroom wall and i thought what would it be like if that crack suddenly just went very dramatically split the wall open i don't know why i thought that I really don't maybe there'd been an earthquake in the news i'm not sure but that image came into my head right and i carried on brushing my teeth and i thought that would be interesting <laughs> rather than scary and then this thought came crashing up behind it which was what if that happened and I ran out of the room told my family you know come and quickly see what's happened and when we all went back into the bathroom again the crack had gone and I literally paused mid toothbrush and I thought that would be a really cool opening for a book now it's very difficult to get from that point to a whole story Mm. but now that I'm writing crime fiction I still have that what if scenario um for example my book Don't You Cry that came out this well last summer I had this idea what if somebody if somebody saved your life in an everyday situation somebody was a real good Samaritan and saved your life the thing that you would do the thing that we would all do is we would say I can't ever thank you enough I'm so grateful I can't thank you enough and I thought what if that happened and the person who saved your life really called you on it in an unacceptable (laughs) way So my scenario is a a woman's having a very bad blind date in a restaurant and she chokes on an olive, nearly dies in a really embarrassing, humiliating way. And this waitress uh, saves her life and she says what you would say, I 
you know, I can't thank you enough. And then the waitress turns up at her house at three o'clock in the morning with a gun having committed a crime. So I'm really fascinated by that. So that's often a what if scenario that I begin with and then I work out from there. It's How about you? What's your Well, one? mine is not quite so precisely what if I think. Um, I think I start from a main character. They're still very, very nebulous and the situation that they're in. I mean, I remember with, with Love Song that came out in 2016, I think it was, um, I was actually looking at Harry Styles, as you do, and looking at One Direction and watching them do world tour after world tour after world tour and thinking, I bet behind the scenes they hate each other by now. They never showed it, and I thought that was even worse, actually, that I just felt that they weren't able to be open about how complicated their lives must be, yeah. and they're probably cracking up. And it was a sort of what if, I suppose. It was it was more what's, what's going on behind the scenes, um, and... What if a girl was there? What would mm. she discover? What what would her I think life? It's similar, be like? really. It sounds quite similar in a way. Um, so so I had that I had that um, that setup, mm. and then what I find is that happens to me about two or three times a week. I think of oh that's an interesting setup, and then most of them just go. They don't stay with me, and then every now and again an idea just sits with me, and other ideas just end up sticking to it. And I, I, for me, it's like a snowball thing as it, it, it gathers momentum. And if it's got, if it has got staying power, I'll be, I'll, I'll hear something on Radio 4, I'll read something in the news and I'll think, oh, that would fit really well with my idea. This, mm. this existential problem that we have yeah. that feeds into my plan. And so my notebook gets fuller and fuller of thoughts, but it's not, it's not a plot yet. It's just kind of things, themes, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. And then I turn that into a plot later. Then I find I've got really thin characters. So I do, I develop the plot from that. And then I spend ages creating characters that are meaty enough to sustain a reader's attention. Mm, interesting. It's always interesting to hear how other people do these things because there's always a bit of a crossover, but it's, as you said in the introduction, it's never exactly the same, is it? It's always, it's always going to be a little bit different from writer to writer, I think. Yeah, and the type of book that you're doing as well, yeah. I suppose. Um, with my history ones, the Ophelia books, actually the publisher had had come up with a the first half of the plot for the first one, and I was just doing really what they said and then taking it on from there, and that was inspired by the Pre-Raphaelites. So actually I was given an awful lot of information, and I quite enjoyed that. Then I could just go to town on um, creating ever more melodramatic things that might happen. Um, but I found with my first book, with, with Threads, um, unlike you, it took you a mere seven years, it took me 10 until <laughs> it got published. Um, but I had to learn everything the hard way. So I, I had, girl at beginning is secret fashion designer, girl at end, spoiler alert, gets fashion show. And I knew that, and it took me four years to work out what happened in the middle. And I did not know how a plot was supposed to be structured and how a reader's attention was supposed to be engaged yeah. and then maintained. And so I just threw away most of what I wrote every day because it would start out great and then it would lose my own attention, never mind the readers. And then I'd work out how to fix that. Um, so I taught myself the basics of plotting, but it was absolute pure trial and error. Um, and I guess 
I was years into it when somebody showed me this plot mountain that we end yeah. up showing our students. Um, do you have a, the plot mountain in mind when you're writing? Um, I never really find those diagrams very helpful, I must be honest with you. I always, I share them with yeah. my students and I can remember recently, um, I think the course before last, becoming completely obsessed with matching three act structure and five act structure and with that famous diagram and then f doing my own lines as to where five acts fits onto three. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. But then I think it just confused people. So I've, I've taken that out of my presentation now. <laughs> I don't I... find those, no, I don't find those diagrams terribly important. One thing that was very interesting that I came across recently, I don't know if you've, if you, if you've seen this, some, um, I'm afraid I don't know who it was, but some um, scientists in America did a big analysis of best-selling fiction. Yeah. And they compared The Da Vinci Code and Fifty Shades of Grey and they had an almost identical plot structure. And it really was just a something happened and then things got worse and kind of, <laughs> or more exciting yes. and a kind of an escalation to the end. And it was a series of bumps. That's your mountain. That's your mountain. But it, was, but it wasn't a sort of here we go up, here we go down and here we go up again, yes. here we go up a little bit. It was literally we go up and down and we go up and down and we go up and down until we reach the end. And they both had exactly that same structure. They've sold a gazillion copies. I found, so it was interesting. Yeah, I I read Fifty Shades. I read bits of it. And I quite enjoyed some of the bits. The other bits I kind of had to close my mind to. Not, not the sex scenes, but just the, the inner goddess stuff. I haven't I read really it. get my head around. <laughs> um, da Vinci Code, I couldn't put down. Um, I, I, it is not my favourite style of writing and it never will be, but by goodness, I needed to know what happened next. I haven't read that either, to my oh, shame. <laughs> I, yeah, I really, it, it, it was a series of puzzles. It, it was mm. brilliant from that point of view. And I, and I felt, it made me feel clever thinking I could just about solve the next mm. puzzle and then the next one would come along. Yeah. And... I think there is an element of that in, in plotting. One of the things I tell my students, particularly the intermediate students, is you've got to dangle things in front of the reader. You can't save all the, uh, the plot solutions, all the answers to the questions until the final chapter. Mm. And a lot of people try, because I find it as a reader, um, I need to learn things as I go along. So yes. some of the issues that were set up at the beginning, some of those questions need to be answered about halfway through, maybe or even a little bit before, but then you can set up new ones. Um, and so I constantly feel like I am making progress. Mm. I'm not waiting for everything to happen in the, in the final few yes. moments. I, I feel there are two things, if this is useful to, to, to talk about. In, I've only discovered in recent years when I'd, been, I'd already been published several times um, but in very recent years, I well, actually, arguably, I've had more success since I'm doing these <laughs> things. I don't know whether that's, there's any connection or not. Two things that I've learned about plotting, which I just think are the most tremendously useful bits of information, which I pass on to students, and they're both very simple. One of them is I didn't really properly understand these, the importance of the midpoint, right. which I'm now obsessed with. And it's become a family joke that we I make my children leap up to... Um, I have to say, where's the remote control when watching a film? And it's got to the point now when they'll say, oh, mum's looking for the midpoint again. Yes. Because I'm, it's, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was such an incredibly important, important part of plot architecture, that you have something 
big in the middle. And that's why so often plots are really saggy. People's first attempts at writing things, or more than first, they sag in the middle. It's because you don't have that place that you're heading to that's a moment of major, major significance. And if you, you know, if you were to go to your bookshelves and find any very successful book and open the book bang in the middle you're going to find that something big is happening and yeah and if you watch a film you can literally yeah. f- f- go see how long it is if it's 120 minutes it will yeah. be in the 60th minute exactly there'll be scary. something <laughs> there'll be something major happening i like to take the gruffalo as an example i mean i'm constantly constantly quoting julia donaldson when i'm teaching but they again spoiler alert the mouse meets the gruffalo about halfway through yes and the second half is so different from the first half but yet it mirrors it i think that's it's a really good example of how that story works and how important the midpoint yeah. can be. And in Harry Potter, in the first Harry Potter book, it's when they have the um, Quidditch lesson. Was, is it Quidditch lesson? The, the flying lesson? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, when they have the flying lesson for the first time. And it's the moment when, for the first time, Harry is good at something. Yes. But he also makes a huge enemy out of Draco Malfoy at that point. So it's a really significant moment in the plot. So that's the first thing. And the other thing, which, again, is incredibly simple, but just brilliantly useful, is I came across across this um, clip online a couple of years ago now, and it's Matt Stone and Trey Parker, who, yes. Are, yes, who are the writers of South Park. And they're talking to a bunch of film students in America about how they plot the episodes of South Park. And they talk about how they have this writer's room where they have whiteboards all over the walls and... They'll think, well, this is a good idea for a scene, and they'll write it up. And they've realised that if, for the next thing that happens, if the words and then can be put between them, that's not good. Interesting. I've never heard That's why I think it's so good. This is so... I love this. Oh, okay. I'm so you shouldn't... Things become episodic and a bit dull when something happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. What it should be is it should be either this happened, therefore this happened because you have to have cause and effect yes um or but then this happened which is your conflict so those two things cause and effect and conflict that's how you can see whether you're including them and for me i was i came across this when i was writing in a cottage in a wood which has been my most successful book and i was a bit stuck on one part of it so i wrote a sentence for each scene that i had through to the to the end on the first draft and I was quite pleased to discover that I it did go therefore or but it doesn't have to be one or the it can be therefore therefore but but yes um until it got to the bit that wasn't very good and that was thought. and then and then and then and it was and it was it was, it was an absolute revelation so now I really have that in mind and I always show this clip to students to young people and to adults as well because it's such an incredibly simple thing and again, my son's my youngest son's not interested in writing at all, but he's kind of unable to you know not pick some of these things up. And we watched something the other day, a film that was very bad, and it was really dragged in the middle, and all sorts of things were wrong with it. And at the end of it, he said, "Do you know what?" He said, "I think that was like that thing you said about therefore, but." He said, "It just went, and then this happened, and then this happened." And I, I thought, my work here is done. <laughs> But it's so useful. Yeah, I really like that for what I'm doing at the moment. But I've also been recently teaching a class where a lot of people want to write picture books. And I think, to be fair, 
quite a lot of the time and then and then and then is what a picture book needs not all the time but that I think it needs repetition and reinforcement is a big part of picture book writing so it can vary from genre to genre and mm. age to age I think but it's the, I would imagine that the the older that your your reader gets from about the age of six upwards the more you'd want to employ I'm that I'm not sure I agree yeah I'm not sure I agree because I think that repetition and that sort of the sort of comforting side of it with a picture book I think you would do that in other ways I think you would do that with the characters and the setting and the, but I think in terms of it having a plot and having a story that you actually want to sort of see what comes next for a small child I, I mean we should get we should have a look shouldn't we at a um, famous picture book and see if it does that yeah interesting perhaps <laughs> it depends on other things as well that you there are certain books I, mean, I, I want my hat back is one of my favorite oh I love that books and I could see that as and then and then yes and then. True. but also I could see it being done badly and mm. being very dull if they're very disconnected things they mm. just sort of happen one after another but mm. these build very strongly and the characters that they're the bare encounters are yeah. very different yeah so mm, yes something to ponder yes absolutely. <laughs> but I, I like those ideas very much and I also like the fact that as as I as I do you've you've instinctively sort of gone to screenwriting for ideas yes yeah I, I didn't I never did the kind of thing that we do I never did a writing course but I did do a screenwriting course with um, a guy called Elliot Grove who does the Rain Dance Festival in London and I learned so much from him that I employ in my books and always have ah. done. Um, about, oh, for example, I mean, I've said this before, but um, start in the middle, start a scene in the middle, start the plot in the middle. Just really get into the heart of the action as quickly as you possibly can. Mm. I find that really helpful. Yeah. And be really bold as you're going through in changing things that aren't working change the sex of a character, change the species of the character, take them out completely if they're not working. If, if there's a plot point that you're completely wedded to but it's causing problems, then get rid of it and see what happens. And mm. he gave me lots of courage to do that, I think. So, yeah, I find I'm, I, I put people... Um, I recommend a lot of screenwriting guides and things I as, do I, too. as ideas. Yeah, they can be incredibly prescriptive. Yes, yeah. I love I love Save the Cat. I find it very funny by Blake Snyder. Yes, I, I like that. But I, I mean, he's got, I think forty two beats. Your story has to have forty two beats, and they have to happen in this minute and this minute and this minute yeah. of your screenplay. And I think that kind of colouring by numbers is quite dangerous for writers. So I would always say to my students. Take it with a pinch of salt, see if it gives you inspiration, but if you want to go in a different direction at a certain point there, and your story's pulling you there, then that's a good thing and do your thing. I think I, I've, I've really enjoyed Save the Cat as well and I do talk about it in my courses. Um, I've never never been able to make it work for me. It's never been useful for me for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's so very prescriptive. Although the I realised that I didn't properly understand one of the sections recently, which was fun and games. You right. know that one. And really, it doesn't mean that something kind of wacky has to happen. What it means is you're reinstating the whole premise. So the thing I'm writing at the moment, which um, is in the early stages, is very dark. I mean, I really have to go look at pictures of puppies when I've been writing it. (laughs) It's quite grim. It's about serial killer. Um, And... um, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. Fun and games. Fun and games, oh yes. And I'd reached a bit where I was a little bit stuck and it seemed to be fun and games and I thought, well, this is not going to work here. And then I realised, actually, it was all about really stating... It's the idea of what's what's going to be in the film trailer for this. What's the really meaty part of what this story is about? The exciting thing that somebody's going to want to 
get from this and I thought ah oh, okay and I thought of a scene that fitted with that so I found that very useful it can be um car chases he says quite a lot can't it, it is an action mm. movie it, it yeah can, as you're saying the, the exciting part but which can be very sort of dark if it was a horror movie then yeah hideous things would be absolutely. going on in the funny absolutely part. yeah um but I find one um one of the things I always say to students is you know have st- save the cat you know look at John Truby, look at all these different tools and think of them as tools and yes. maybe it might not work on one occasion, it might work on another. There's a book called, which I really hate the title of it, but it's called Take Off Your Pants. Do you know that one? No, I do not. Oh, it's very, it's, it's, it's a, the idea being about pantsing and plotting. Which we'll talk about, yes. Yeah, um, and it's by Libby Barker, I think. Okay. Sorry if I got that wrong. And it's very good. It's again, it's a, it's another way of plotting and thinking about how you structure a plot. Um, Stealing Hollywood by Alexandra Sokolov. I don't know if you know that one. I don't. That's a fantastic book. So that's about using screenwriting tips for writers, and I've I've found that to be one of the most useful that I've yeah. come across. So I say, well, you know, you read them, see what you think. Don't feel you have to slavishly follow these patterns, but quite often they do share some DNA, I think, and that yeah. can be helpful to see where they think certain things should be happening. I think so too. It sounds like you have a very similar attitude to it, to mine, um, which is that the tools are out there and they clearly have things in them that work. There are some really useful things that you can do to stories to get them going if they're not working out, but that students should start from the story that they want to tell and only use these if they need extra scaffolding to help them out I think rather than set out to write what John Truby says or what John York says or what Blake Snyder says yes um you want your particularly if it's a children's story I think you want it to have heart and you want to feel passionately about it I think um and it's children's writing that that mostly I've been teaching about um if it's something that you just wrote to a formula then it's going to be hard to maintain your passion for it, I think, during the inevitably difficult process of trying to get it published. Yeah, I think I, th- I think I feel slightly differently just because when I started writing, I didn't know about any of these things and it seemed to me that it was all going swimmingly well, but it wasn't, it, it just, it just wasn't good. It wasn't a it wasn't something enjoyable to read because I just, it was a bit rambly and I didn't know what I was doing and things didn't really, it just didn't have that sort of tightness of plot that, but personally as a reader, I like that. I like to read things that are well plotted. I'm not somebody that's drawn to very sort of rambly books that have pages and pages and pages of description and no real story. That's not my kind of cup of tea as a reader. So I definitely don't want to be writing that, but I think people, I think it's useful to have a night to to know these things about plotting, even if yes. you don't use them. I yes. think I think I would sort of I would always encourage people to to have a look and get some kind of idea of of how this works. Just even you can re- reject it if you don't want to to have to follow a plot in this kind of way. But we do seem to be hardwired to respond to things told in certain ways. So yeah, I like that idea. Um, and. I, I yeah I did find it very helpful about four four years in when I did see this story mountain thing which 
people can Google and find very easily if they don't know what it looks like. But the idea being that you you describe the world that the character's in, and then there is an inciting incident. I didn't know what an inciting incident was until about book five, but something happens that kicks it off. And then as you were saying, um, the, the tension builds and builds and builds and builds and builds yeah. to a climax. And then there's a really quite long denouement afterwards. And I've always found in my own writing that when I'm when I'm in the process of kind of climbing up that mountain, I assume that the denouement is going to be the last chapter. Mm. And then it will be, you know, a, a very small percentage of the book. But when I come to it, there's a huge amount to resolve and explain and uncover. And actually the denouement can be a good fifth of the book sometimes. I'm always mm. fascinated by that. But it is an up and a down. Mm. Um, and I like it when I look at um, screenwriting guides, um, the up and the down is in terms of tension and then screenwriting guides seem to do it in terms of main character's emotion and it's the exact inverse of that. It's a down and an up mm. to the lowest, lowest point in the crisis where you push them beyond what they can take almost and then up to some kind of oh, solution. So I quite like to... I don't know if you've, um, there was a book that I, I bought, which lots of parts of it I found incredibly useful, but the, the, there's a big graph in there that is the most complicated thing I've ever seen in my life. It, and it's, it's, um, it's called The Story Grid. Have you come across that one? I have, yeah. <laughs> it's really good, but um... it's a bit beyond me. It's so complicated, that actual grid thing that he's applied to the silence of the lambs i think yes is the i've seen exactly that if yeah if it works for a writer then fantastic yeah. but i i find it 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 feels like a sort of phd thesis that the the reading of it and the um the terminology of it it doesn't do it for me at all i had one editor who liked me to plot everything out in a tremendous amount of detail uh on a spreadsheet so that scene by scene, location by location, character by character, I knew exactly what was happening when. And before I started, we could be absolutely sure that there wouldn't be any gaps and that everything was cross-referenced. And I did it for one of my books and I just didn't want to write the book. No. Because it was written in my head. What was Mm. the point? Um, So I I like a mixture of, yes, knowing that I need to be building up tension, knowing about these really useful things about midpoints and these turning points that it's useful Mm. to have either side. And I always tell my students that it's really important to have a twist. Let's talk about twists. Talk about twists. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So I like to have those things in mind, but not be super specific about exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. When I like to explore as I go and and discover things as I'm writing and have room to do that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think think sometimes you just need somebody to sort of, you know, even when you're a very experienced writer, to give you permission to do something. Because in the book I mentioned, Stealing Hollywood, the Alexandra Sokolov one, excuse me, it's absolutely brilliant. And she has this whole post-it note plotting thing or, or on a Which we need whiteboard. Which to talk about. Yes, yes. love that. Um, but the way she has it, um, it's in sort of eight parts, the plot, but it's three acts. Yes. And I three acts just does not work for me. See, I love three acts. Yeah, three acts really doesn't... Well. I, can't, I, <laughs> I can't work with three acts. And five acts, because obviously the third act is really just the midpoint. I, I've got so obsessed with this whole business of how many acts. And I realised looking at her plotting diagram if you look at it in a certain way it looks like four acts yes and I was having a discussion with a fantastic crime writer called Ed James who's a friend of mine a Scottish crime writer um and I sort of said but I I know this is you know we're not 
meant to think this way, but I think maybe I think in four. And he said, that's fine. It's <laughs> yeah. fine to do I that. Works really well and I well. needed somebody to say it, you know, <laughs> I needed someone else to say, of course you can do four acts. There's no nothing wrong with that at all. But it's strange, even when you're very experienced sometimes, just having somebody say that to you makes all the difference, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, perhaps that's, that's a lot of what we do is give people permission to, to try things yes, out, hopefully, yeah. and, and point them in different directions to where yeah. to find inspiration. Mm, mm. Um yeah, we need to come back to twists. Yes. Don't we? Yeah. Um, I think they're really important because I think from babyhood, we're surrounded by stories. And I mean, my kids, from the moment that they could listen to a story, really, they understood story structure. And um, the people like to be surprised. So I found, you know, even if I'm writing for, let's say, 9, 10, 11 year olds, I have to do, I have to really work hard myself to create what I would call a third act that my readers couldn't see coming from a mile off because they're just so story literate. They get it from TV, they get it from the games that they play these days, um, they get it from books too, they're lucky. Um, so yeah, I do, I work extremely hard and I test things out on focus groups and say, what do you think is going to happen? Oh. And to start with, they are bang on and I think, oh God, yeah, he's going to have to oh, change. Wow. And from chapter one, I remember with, with Love Songs, so there's a girl, four members, boy members of the band, from chapter one they were working out which one she's going to end up with obviously she's going to end up with one of them and they were making a series of leaps as to how this was going to happen and I think I'm going to have to work so hard to make sure that's not what happens I heard Sarah Waters being oh I love I adore Sarah Waters um being interviewed talking about the little stranger have you read that no oh it's fantastic ghost story and it's got a very twisty surprising ending and I heard her being interviewed about it and um, she said that she showed the book to a friend who just immediately guessed what was going on and right. she had to go back and make it much and it's very opaque now I think what happens at the end which I'm not going to say awesome it's a, such a good book there's a film that's out about now and I saw a poster for it on you know the side of a bus so the way that they do bus posters in London um, there's there's very little information there's a f- there's a picture from the film which you only see a part of and there's a strap line and that's kind yes. of it and I also can't remember the film but I remember just looking at that picture and and then there was the title I think it was just the title and I thought I, I know what happens I could be wrong but I don't want to see it because I think I know that it's all about Munchausen's by proxy oh wow what's it called do you remember um I haven't remembered that's called the act the act yes oh. and a picture of mother and her daughter and oh. I'm thinking if it's not about Munchausen's by proxy, <laughs> then they should have done the poster differently to make me more intrigued. Yeah. But I don't feel intrigued. I just think, okay, that's what it's going to be. And I saw it in um, oh, one of my favourite films, um, Sixth Sense. That's, I was just about to mention that. I'm so glad you mentioned The Sixth <laughs> Sense because what you were saying about, about young and modern audiences being so savvy and having seen everything before. I remember when, I think we're a similar sort of age, I remember when The Sixth Sense came out just being absolutely blown away by the twist in that. You it's know, my favourite twist of all time. It's such a great twist, isn't it? Um, but I watched the film not very long ago with my son, who is he's 16 now, just in the last year, and he guessed instantly. Did he? Instantly he knew what was going on. But I think it's become, it's almost become part of the cultural landscape yes. it's probably been on the simpsons or something hasn't it i mean the simpsons <laughs> has done everything family guy or something yeah like that. i mean yes. you know he would have known i see dead people as a as a <laughs> phrase before he even saw the film and it didn't really help that the week before just by chance we watched 
I think it's called The Quiet Ones, and it's that one with Nicole Kidman where it's got the exact same twist. Oh, has it? So I don't think that helped. Oh, interesting. No, probably not. What I loved about it, I didn't see it coming. A friend did, hopefully this isn't a total spoiler alert if people haven't seen it, um, is uh, uh, watched it with this friend years ago when it came out and she said, oh, the wife paid for her own dinner. I guessed it then. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, because I always say to students that the very best twists are foreshadowed a little bit i think the very best ones that you, they that you should simultaneously sort of gasp in astonishment but also go ah two I'm minutes later because if you watch it again when you know what the yes, twist is it makes perfect it does sense. there are lots of scenes that where they do foreshadow what's happening Completely. and you just that's very clever of your friend to have spotted that yes well i don't think she doesn't approve when the woman has to pay for her own dinner <laughs> <Blimey>. <laughs> clearly gone horribly wrong um yes I don't talk about foreshadowing much when I'm teaching, do you? I talk about it with twists. Yes. Yeah, because I'm teaching crime fiction. Yes. It's you know, it's crucial really to talk about that. And I I have this thing, I really hate it when a twist as I, I think of it when it gives you whiplash. It's just a sort of wait what yes, kind of moment exactly. where it's so out Why of the blue. Why would they do that? Yeah. And there yes. are plenty of books that have, you know, been published that and films that, that end that way and I just think it's so unsatisfying you really should there should be a little part of you moments after thinking that's an amazing twist thing oh actually it's the problem yeah. I have I don't know if it's just me with One Day by David Nichols which otherwise oh, I absolutely I adored book. you obviously didn't find the same thing I just felt that the contract with the reader for me wasn't there for that twist to happen oh so I, I just felt I don't like this I didn't want this I'm not signed up for this it wasn't I didn't think it was that kind of book so oh, that's funny because I cold. felt I had that similar sort of feeling with um, Khaled Hosseini. Was it The Mountains Echoed? I don't know. It was the second big book that came out after The, the Kite Runner. Mm, I haven't read that. Oh, and it's... The, 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 well, are we doing spoilers in this podcast? No, we're no, not doing okay. spoilers. <laughs> oh, well. The thing that, shaking head something that happened fun. in it was just... I just felt like so annoyed and let down at the end. For that similar reason to you, but I won't say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it's got to be ideally something that the reader doesn't see coming, but as soon as it's there, they think, "Yeah, makes absolutely. perfect sense." Then, yeah, which is very hard to pull off. Yes, but um, I, th- I really think those are the best twists. I think it's really important that they little seeds are, are planted along the way so that they make sense when they come, and they don't just come like a juggernaut out of nowhere. Yeah. And I think if we look at um, I Want My Hat Back, the the John Fasson picture book, which is one of my favourite books of all time, it's all there. There is a twist. There is foreshadowing. (laughs) It's absolutely brilliant. There's foreshadowing in the illustrations. It's just so funny, isn't it? It's just such a funny, funny book. It makes me laugh so much. It's so brave. (laughs) Yeah. Again, you're talking about uh, kind of sort of liberating students or Mm. or, or, people who we're we're talking to about writing, giving them um, the freedom to make bold choices. and, And I think... Yeah, once they've read that, then you realise you can write about anything. Yeah, I always think about that being bold thing as well, actually. Um, With, you know, sort of, I always say to students, if you you have a big idea, if you have a really exciting big idea, go for it. I've almost never been told to tone something down. Yeah, push it more. Push it more, yeah. Push it and somebody might say, well, maybe that's a little bit much, tone it down. But it's going to get their interest. As As a new writer, it's going to get somebody's interest in a way that something that's quite good doesn't I think that's the trouble oh, yeah. with a lot of things being actually pretty good but they have to be better than that that's so true I found every now and again somebody brings something to the class and I just think 
that is just so amazing. Golly, the agent's going to be very excited to see that. And almost always that person is very shy and embarrassed about it because in some way it's very personal to them and they've gone yeah. to a place that they yes. didn't think they were allowed to go to yeah. and didn't think they were allowed to share. I'm thinking of two students actually from my recent class have done this and that's what made it special. Yeah. And actually it was true for me with Threads, which was um, my, my one that got published first and got published in the most countries. Uh, it mixes the London fashion scene with um, child soldiers in Uganda and um, the horrible things that were happening then and still are happening in Congo and other places. So it, it, it's the sort of the most superficial, although the fashion world in London is not always superficial at all, but it can be. But the, the, the joyousness of creativity in London with the darkest things that can go on in a child's life. And I thought, I am fascinated by both of these things, but I am the only person in the world who is, and I am mad to try and put them both <laughs> in the same book. And I'm only doing it because I don't have physical time to write two books. So I just have to say everything in this one. And it will never get published, but at least I'll have said it. Oh, wow. And that was what Barry Cunningham, who published Threads, said made it work. Ah. So yes, be uh, brave. if, I'd, if yes. I'd done either of those things on their own, I'd have written a quite nice book yes. that wouldn't really have pushed it yeah. to the edge. But um, it was doing that being bold that made the difference. Yes, no, I, I agree. I think I think you have to. I think you just have to really go for it and make it the biggest story you can, I think. Um, whatever, whatever sort of book you're writing, you know, and think about the plot, think about keeping people interested, keeping them drawn to keep turning the pages. That's the thing that everybody is looking for, I think. Yeah, and there's different ways of doing that. This is what I find really fascinating. What I did when I started, which was wrong, was I just had a great idea, went for it and wrote 5,000 words in a flurry of excitement. And I'm 5,000 words in, I would discover the thing that meant it wasn't going to work. And I did this over and over again in that 10 years yeah. when I wasn't getting published. Yeah. Um, and I just learned, sometimes it was the 10,000 word disaster point, and sometimes it was the 5,000 word disaster point. And that's why I'm a plotter now, oh. is I have to have enough of a structure to know that I can get beyond that self-criticism or genuine issue with the plot. I've got enough oomph to carry it forward. So I like to plot, but I'm fascinated by Lee Child, for example, clearly fairly successful thriller writer. Um, and I've read Reacher Said Nothing by Andy Martin, which I adore, which is where Andy Martin follows Lee Child for a year while he writes his 20th, I think, bestseller. Oh. Literally sits over his shoulder. Oh, He's turning on his computer. It's Ariel 10 point, And I find this so exciting. Oh, it's wow. great. And Lee doesn't plot, but he writes as a reader. So he has the character in mind. Obviously, he knows him really well by now. And he has a setting in mind in America. And... Um, he might have a female character who's he's sort of thought about a tiny bit and he sits down a certain day in September every year and he writes page one and then he from then on until I until a certain amount of the way through but quite far through he writes as a reader so he just sort of writes what he sees in his mind I think and oh I'm intrigued by that sedan car that's sitting outside that hardware shop why is it doing that wow. and he follows it through and then he has no idea what the plot's going to be until really quite late on god that's amazing that seems amazing for for, the, for that kind of crime fiction that he would do that i didn't I, know that and apparently he doesn't do that much rewriting either but he must be a sheer genius i think at thinking yeah. like a reader and wow. keeping it sustained i don't know how you how you do that that's incredible i heard kate atkinson um on the radio talking about this 
quite some time ago and I got the impression that she too is somebody that just decides this is the day the new book is going to be begun um it's going to begin and she sits down and she just starts to write I don't know whether that and this was a while ago that I heard her say this mm. I don't know since she's done the Jackson Brody detective novels whether that's changed or not and also she's had some quite complicated plots in recent times hasn't she with playing oh, with time absolutely. so maybe she does plot now I don't know if you're listening Kate <laughs> we would love to know how you do this it's <laughs> fascinating um I like David Arman talking about it. He has a lovely page on his website called On Writing and he talks about the messiness of it. And for him, a lot of it is about getting the voice right. So he plays around a lot. He experiments. He writes phrases and sentences and things. And he's trying to find his way into the voice the way I start out trying to find my way into the plot. Oh, wow. Really, really interests me. And then the plot seems to come a bit later. And then I thought of you, um, another crime writer, um, Val McDermott, was talking about her process and the fact that it's changed over time, and I think it keeps changing. But she was talking about her, I think it was her 14th or 15th book, and, just looking at my notes here, it it was called... um, Oh, yeah, The The Torment of Others in 2004. And she had her deadline coming up, and she was always just... Up until then, she could always just do it, do it, do it, and the deadline was really close, and she was less than halfway through she'd hardly written any words and she's had to take herself off to Italy and work for about sort of 10 hours a day I think and then um have a glass of wine and some food in the evening and then just do it all over again and she did that for nine days and she had 60,000 words wow, but she didn't know what it was going to be and her editor said that was the best first draft she'd ever delivered and the book won the Thigston Old Peculiar Award. That fills me with absolute horror. (laughs) I've got the cold sweats that the very thought of having to do that. But it fascinates me there was as well that it's one, I mean it must be intricately plotted, you know, her thrillers must be so, I don't know whether she then had to go back and put put plot points I think she's so, I think she's such an expert now, I think she just carries around amazing plot architecture in her head. Yes, yes. I think. I think if I tried to, I have this I have this constant terror that the words won't come and I won't be able to write anything. I'm very much an underwriter rather than an overwriter and I'm an adder rather than a hacker. Really? Yeah, when I get oh, to the I'm end, jealous. I have to add. Well, I'm you're. I'm jealous of you. If you're, it's always the way. <laughs> I'm a massive hacker. Yes, yeah, no. always the way. We always look at each other across the barricades, <laughs> don't we, and wish well, that we were different. But... I think the perfect book length is 40,000 words and I write to 90,000 but that, I think that after the Second World War, there was a paper shortage and people like Graham Greene were told they had to write short books so because there wasn't enough paper to print long ones. And it's interesting, around then, a lot of 40,000-ish word, book, oh. word books came out. And I think Holes by Louis Sachar, whose name I don't know how to pronounce, Sachar, is also around that length. Several yeah. classics are, I think, usually just by accident. I think it's a glorious length. It's, they're very... They're very tightly written, rich books, and I aspire to write that, but yeah. Well, it's funny because my books are contracted to be 90,000 words, and I would be very happy if they were like maybe 50 or 60. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I would feel much happier if I could write shorter books. I wonder how long Agatha Christie's are. I I think they're pretty short, but they seem short. Yes. Yes, I've, yeah, I always have to go back and add in a lot of detail because I'm, I haven't described anything in the first draft. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm usually a big describer. I'm terrible at describing action scenes, apparently. I always have to go back in and put a lot more detail in those. Um, my editor always says, I can't picture what's going on. So describe oh. where they all are in relation to each other and how they're moving towards each other and all that oh. kind of thing, which I don't do. Um, but the rest of the time, I'm a, I'm a big describer. 
Uh, and I just have too much going on. I invent too many subplots and things, so I, I end up doing masses of hacking as I go through. Ah, no, I always have this... But the thought of doing what Val McDermott did and having to sit down and just write something... I had to do that with Love Song. Oh, so, horrifying to me. <laughs> um, I had a patchwork of things with a, a really massive hole of several chapters in the middle, and some of it was in the third per- th- first person, some in the third, some was present tense, some was past. And my Facebook writing group gave me the confidence to show it to my editor at all. Otherwise, I would have just said, I, I'm not doing it because it's just never going to be good enough. But they said, no, there's something there. Um, and my editor said, yes, there is. And then um, a friend had an Airbnb place up uh, in Oxfordshire somewhere. And I did that. Yeah, I just went and, and stayed in this lovely, lovely house overlooking Greenfields. And the pressure was fantastic. Mm. Um, the first day I did nothing. The second day I did almost nothing, felt hugely guilty. I think I only had about four days. Um, and in the next two, I took the mess that I had and I picked out of it what I could use and I wrote like a mad thing. So yes, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, fantastic. definitely. No, I could do that. It would be not having anything. I, that would fill me with horror. The idea yeah. of being able to go away for a few days and really crack on with what I'm yeah. doing them would be, would be bliss if I could only <laughs> do it. But yeah, no, it would be the having nothing and nothing really well, in I the cupboard. I... <laughs> <laughs> having to produce something, that's what gives me the cold chills yeah I mean apart from Lee Child and that just feels still very very weird and I'd love to talk to him about it as well um but apart from that with David Armand and the other people that I've I've read about and, and listened to them talking about their process it sounds like they have a lot before they start months if not years worth of thinking about uh, it yeah and as you say maybe a, a huge knowledge of story architecture that they're yes. bringing to bear yes I think so, that must yeah, be the case I wouldn't say to to somebody who's starting out it's fine. Just yes, sit down and just do sit it. down. Well, I, I did do that. I did do that to begin with. Yeah, but, but don't expect, don't do that, and then send that off to to your agent as mm. <laughs> your first thing because you probably need to have a few more goes before that works out yes, for you. Yeah, I think I kind of did do that with my very first book. Actually, I just it just sort of splurged out. Oh, this is great! I yeah. love this. It was like sort of falling in love. I just couldn't wait oh. to get to do it. But I've never written anything since then that seemed to come so easily, but it, it wasn't, it was no good. <laughs> Mine too. It was called The Body of a Dancer. It was about an anorexic ballet, ballet dancer. It splurged out five weeks, adored every minute of it, <laughs> never going to be published. <laughs> yeah. Do you get asked that question sometimes by people? Oh, did you, you know, would you go back and, yeah. All the time. And I would go back to some of the later ones that I tried failed to do. Uh, I think with a few extra edits rewrites series rewrites they might turn into something but that first one was too slight yes I I look back and I just I I can see now I can see all the things that were wrong that I just couldn't I wasn't unable to see then yeah Uh, again something I say to students is the great quoting Neil Gaiman finish things finish it Mm. absolutely finish it because in that process as Neil Gaiman says you learn so much writing beginnings is fine yeah. but a writer has to learn how to write endings yes so absolutely it's a, it's a real learning experience and that's probably all it is your first one is a learning experience yeah but it's good mm. to get it out of the way one of the other things that we've been mentioning but i'd like to talk about a little bit more is just the tools that we use to plot and i know that for me that's changed over the years um because i started out just using word documents and bullet points and just writing out a sort of six page chapter plan I guess to start with 
And now I use all sorts of different things. But how do you tend to plot your books? I I think the conversation that you referred to right at the very beginning about me saying using different methods as I go along, I think that came around, I was talking before about, I used to be obsessed with the idea of note cards. All my friends seemed to plot yeah. their books using note cards and whenever I was starting something new I'd go and buy a beautiful new packet of note cards and get very excited about them open them up sit there get all sorts of different colored pens and then just stare at them and not be able to do anything with them then I realized that the reason I was struggling with that is because they felt too permanent and I felt committed to the things that I wrote on them I know what you mean yeah so I discovered using post-it notes which feel a little bit more disposable and I found post-it note plotting um, very very useful for one of my books went to write the book after that couldn't make that work either <laughs> so it was a really strange thing and I did yeah I did sort of have a feeling then that however much we might talk about all these different um, plot shapes and different tools and so on it, at the end of the day it's not a science writing a story isn't a science and it's never going to be a science I don't yes, think it shouldn't be. yeah and we can't really impose those kind of rules on something that's a creative process and I think creative processes are by their very nature a bit messy and they don't necessarily conform always to shapes even though we have we can impose tools on them that can help us but they we shouldn't expect that the process is going to be the same every single time so now that I've it's that thing about permission again now that I've given myself that permission that's really helped because I think well okay maybe this isn't the tool that's going to work for me this time I'll try and do it a different way and I've got beyond the idea that only proper writers um you know have a method because it seems doesn't it seem that way when other people are interviewed they all seem to have an absolutely cast iron way of writing something well yes that's what I always found and I'm <laughs> funny enough I, I've forgotten but I quite agree with sort of file cards I've always thought of it exactly the, the, the joy of going to Ryman's or wherever it was and buying station oh it's such fun brilliant yeah loved that part <laughs> and then get back and be a proper writer and write it all down. Yes, I have two things. Firstly, I was committing myself to something that I didn't necessarily want to do. and Or I find that I was actually writing the story out on this card in very, very tiny writing because I could hardly yeah, get it on and yeah. it was in the wrong place. And also that the cards were stacked on top of each other so I then couldn't see what I'd written. Yeah. And actually, however I plot nowadays, I want it to be something that I can see at a glance. So like you, I mean, it was our friend Karen David who told me about post-it note plotting. And I loved that. And that worked brilliantly for Love Song for me. Um, And I bought a really big piece of paper. In fact, I stuck two pieces of paper together with sellotape to make a really big um, piece that I could put above my desk and put lots and lots of post-it notes on that. Um, But I and now I'm using a spreadsheet for the book, actually, that I'm writing at the moment, which I didn't expect to do. Um, But that seems to be working for this one. So yeah, I do find that I, I change from thing to thing. And and I wonder whether when people are interviewed, they, they generally happen to just talk about what they're doing right now. But if you'd asked them two books ago, it would have been something else. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's the case. Because <laughs> it does make you feel like you're not a proper writer if you don't have a method that you use every single time that you know will bring success. Yeah. But um, I, I, that, that did hold me back for quite a long time, that thinking, actually. And I it's think. also like the, the day of a writer as well. Because, you know, you hear about these things like, you know, oh, Roald Dahl will go to his shed at eight o'clock every morning or whatever it was. Mm. And he, he'd go for a walk at ten. And, um, and I bet, you know, some days he probably would. Yes. And other days he probably wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's good to know that we all have to fit it in around our lives and yeah things change yeah oh absolutely it's, it's not it's not possible I don't think to do it in that kind of structured way unless I mean for me I, 
my way of structuring it is that I go to the British Library um, to work. And for me, that's I have a sort of Pavlovian response to knowing that that's where I have to write because oh, I've taken the trouble to go and it yes. you know, involves having to pay someone to walk the dog sometimes and yeah. it involves some domestic upheaval to some extent, less so now my children are older. Mm. But when they were younger, it did. And um, I felt then that was that that imposes some kind of order on sort so of writing how often life. Do you do? Depends on where I'm at, what yeah. stage I'm at with things. I mean I went yesterday, mm-hmm. but it's the first time I'd been able to go for several weeks because right. I've been doing so much teaching stuff. Yes. So it's quite hard. <laughs> um do you write anywhere special? Well, my shed, which we can actually see from where we're ah. sitting at the end of the garden. Uh, I write there mostly now. I used to write more on a laptop and I used to take it to cafes a lot, particularly where I didn't have the Wi-Fi code so I couldn't distract yes. myself. Yeah, that's good. I'm weaning myself off um, my distractions. It's taking a long time. It's very hard, isn't it? Yes, it is very hard. Um, I might have mentioned it before, but I, I read a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, which is all about how we do creative work. And a lot of it is to do with how we, we manage the part of our brain that just wants to go off and do something quickly and doesn't want to get bored. And how we have to just ignore that part of our brain, be bored for a while and then get into oh, thinking. I, I think I need to get that book. I <laughs> highly recommend it. Tell me again what it's called. Deep Thinking. Deep Thinking. Yes. Um, I really enjoyed it. Lots of practical tips. Did you say deep work? Oh, no, sorry. Deep work. That's right. Well spotted. Deep work. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> deep work. Um, yes. Highly recommended. And so I'm trying to just to, to weed myself off those, those things. I do have Wi-Fi in the shed. But yeah, I, I mostly work there now. But as you say, you know, when I'm not teaching, um, hardly any of the writers I know can make a full-time living out of what we do. So we're all doing other things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that is typical. And I think if if somebody is setting out to be a writer and they find that they're not doing that 80 or 90% of the time because they're doing a job that's bringing in money, that's what writers are doing. That's, you know, they shouldn't feel that, oh, I'm not a real writer then. That's what real writers are doing too. I actually know someone who worked for a very big company and won a year's sabbatical in a raffle. <laughs> oh, wow. um, he paid sabbatical for a year. And the idea was that she would write a book and she just was paralysed by having the pressure of it. Yes. And I think, you know, it's that thing about ask a busy person to do something. I think I, I wouldn't want to write full time all day not without doing anything else. I'd go around the bend. I did it for a while. I could afford to for a while. And I did start to go around the bend. I found I just, I missed other people. I missed conversations. I missed a lot of the the reward of um, sharing ideas that I do actually get with teaching. Mm. So, yeah, it's got a lot of benefits as well as just being financially important. One thing I'm interested in quickly is whether or not you use Scrivener, which is the one tool apart from Word that I know writers quite often use to create their books. I don't. I have paid for the full version. I got very excited by the free sample. I thought, yes, this is going to transform everything, like I always do when I discover a new a new sort of um, tool. I think this is going to be the thing that's going to make it all easy from now on, and writing will be very straightforward. Um, and I downloaded the, paid for the full version, and I, I, can't, I can't make head or tail of it. And I've had somebody, I've had a friend explain it to me, and I've tried to watch tutorials, and I just feel tremendously thick because I cannot <laughs> I cannot seem to get my head around how to use it 
I, would, oh, I wish yeah. there was a class. I would go and pay money to go and do a class, but I can't find anything like that. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there are the tutorials that they've got on YouTube. But it's so boring watching tutorials yes, on YouTube. Yes, I know. Perhaps, a, perhaps a, a day would be good. I'm trying to plow my way through. I've bought the full thing as well, and sometimes I, I find it very inspirational. But I, at the end of the day, at the moment, I still go back to working in Word, which is what I know, and mm. that's where my manuscript is, and I don't feel comfortable splitting it up into lots of little parts yet no I don't think I do I would still like to give it a go at some point but Mm. it's not it's not worked for me yet (laughs) and on that note (laughs) thank you very much for coming along and chatting about this it's been really lovely to catch up with you thank you my pleasure I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of pre-published You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love suggestions for future themes and guests too. You can also join us on Twitter at prepubpodcast and find me at my website, which is sophiabennett.com.